Alex Belfras. It's my pleasure to welcome you to FP 21 Minutes, a podcast dedicated to evidence and integrity in foreign policy. We bring you conversations between practitioners and researchers about how American foreign policy is made and how it can be made better. Here is part three of the conversation between Vic Marsh and Dan Spikajny. Dan, I take a very dim view of mandatory discrimination or anti-harassment training. And here's why. It involves using just one more logical lens than the, the mandators like to use. So first lens, let's try to understand why do we end up with mandatory compliance-driven training programs for some very natural reasons, right? It's perfectly understandable. It's logical in a legal way. So if I'm a lawyer and I'm looking at the risk that someone's going to get harassed at work, right? Sexually harassed, sexually assaulted, discriminated against racially. I, If I'm a lawyer, I'm thinking in legal terms. I'm trying to figure out what is the way that I convince a judge that we take this seriously? How do you show someone that you mean business? You make it mandatory, right? That's the logic out there. There's just one really significant problem with that. And that's that second logic that I'm bringing to the table. And that's the logic of, of studying scientifically the results of your choices. And the choice to make it mandatory is a major problem for your future results at retaining and recruiting diverse people. So for reasons that are imaginable but are hard to pin down, we see that mandatory approaches to training, if you fast forward five years, you're going to have, on average, 9.2 fewer Black women in your organization. You're going to have 4.5% fewer Asian men and 5.4% fewer Asian women on average, right? Now, some people look at that and don't, they don't process it. They don't treat it as the preventable emergency that it is. But if you're choosing to make your training program on anti-harassment and anti-racism mandatory because you want to show you me business, you are doing exactly what harms diversity instead of what enhances diversity. So you're saying that mandatory anti-harassment or anti-discrimination training programs harms diversity. Absolutely. So we've learned that in, in three separate sources. One is to look at large firms, private sector firms. You figure out what kinds of diversity initiatives they do, what kinds of HR things they do year by year. So we've got major studies from Alexandra Kalov and Frank Dobbin, who over the years have tracked this in the private sector. First, they looked at big firms. Okay, so what happens at big firms? Let's say you do a mix of things. Maybe you have a diversity task force. Maybe you have full-time people who just do diversity work full-time. Maybe you have special college recruitment at women's colleges. Maybe you have for Latino-serving institutions and historically Black colleges. So you do a bunch of diversity stuff, and they track year by year. From 1973 forward to 2012, what did you do, including diversity training and whether it was mandatory or voluntary? And we've learned quite a lot from that. We've extended and replicated this work in smaller firms. So it's not just the big Fortune 500 stuff. We've got scientists working on the smaller firms. Then I spoke with Frank Dobbin pretty recently, just at the end of last year. And 
they've got new work coming out next year that looks at universities, right? To look at the results of various things tried at universities and whether it, it impacts their future diversity. So you choose a program in year one, programs getting implemented, maybe year two and three, year four, maybe the program drops off, maybe it reappears. You just trace this stuff across time and you look at the little upticks and the downticks and the dives off a cliff in your diversity over time. You look at the surges in diversity over time and you relate them to what was this organization doing in the time just before that that led to these results. And mandatory diversity training, mandatory anti-harassment training, it harms that. You're going to get more harassment in a mandatory approach to towards all your employees for sexual harassment. And it's a strange finding, but it's one that keeps getting found over and over again. And people in positions of authority continue to ignore it. They continue to try to show they mean business. I would like them to mean business, to achieve less harassment, to achieve more racial and gender diversity. That should be the goal. It should not just be a signaling goal to show you mean business by making it mandatory. You should substantively want to have good results. Does non-mandatory training reach the same negative results? No, this is great news. So the very first thing we could do is flip a switch from mandatory to voluntary. You actually see over time that voluntary training programs, worst case, if it's actually voluntary, worst case, you might have no effect on your diversity. Now, I don't like wasting people's time, so I don't view a zero effect as all that great of a bit of a news. Please tell me we're going to aim higher than just doing absolutely no harm or benefit. The great news that we've heard from the work of Aaron Kelly, I believe now at MIT, is that on sexual harassment programs, you encountering sexual harassment you can focus on the managers and you focus on voluntarily attracting managers to bystander awareness training. So this is where you're actually equipping managers, not with a bunch of legal scenarios. Is this harassment? Is that harassment? That stuff that leads to water cooler conversations about how you can't even tell a joke around the ladies these days, right? Like you've got to step away from having your general counsel lawyers write a bunch of legal scenarios in your training because you're hurting people. You're teaching harassers how to be smarter harassers, how to tap dance right next to the line and not cross into illegality. So what Aaron Kelly has found is that when you instead take it away from your general employee training, focus it on the bosses, train the bosses in how to recognize some ancillary signs that some harassment is going on. You're not putting the onus on employees to, oh, go tell your boss if somebody violated your rights. No, you're not making people turn themselves into the proverbial rats. Instead, what they found is that this manager focus, this boss focus training on noticing the signs that something is going wrong on a gender level and giving them tips on how to strategically and smartly intervene in some, using some smart language, some smart skills, this bystander intervention stuff is very important. My frustration with this topic is that we actually have some good recommendations to give leaders on how they can end the scourge of sexual harassment. Another is 
this retooling, hanging in there to retool and retool your mentorship programs. The State Department never does this. Our mentorship programs last a year and then they go bust. Why? Because it's actually pretty complicated to mentor in a globally dispersed organization across 200-something offices. We've got stratification by rank. Can I just call up my ambassador and ask for some mentorship? Maybe not. I don't know. It depends on the person. So mentorship is one of those approaches, some formal mentorship matching that delivers a lot of eye rolls, people are rolling their eyes at the wrong thing. They're, they're, they're looking at mentorship program and, and they're saying, oh, that won't be organic, right? That won't, that won't help boost organic relationships. The evidence is to the contrary. Formal mentorship programs will boost the number of people rising through your ranks who are Asian men and women by an average of 18 to 24%. Hispanic men and women will see boosts from nine for the men and 23% uh, for the Latinas uh, on average. So some are higher, some are lower. This is just the average. And you really see an unleashing of Black women's talent on average in, in the corporate sector of 18% more representation in managerial roles over time. So we've got to stop letting the institution be so lazy when it comes to the initiatives that pack the biggest punch for diversity. We can't just say mentorship programs are hard to run, so we're not going to keep going at it. We've actually got to reinvigorate these efforts. And I think Congress could help tremendously with this by making sure that it doesn't suffer the boom and bust cycle of rotating employees. We should have some professional who has built global mentorship programs before. Alumni type networks might be some good skill sets to have people who have done mentor matching in a globally dispersed institution before that we can hire full time to tinker with this thing, to measure results and to get it improved. One of the most disappointing findings from my work with the Truman Center Task Force on transforming the State Department is that the current hyperlinks inside the State Department for the iMentor program, the kind of globally dispersed mentorship program, lead to nothing. They lead you to an error page. So you want to click, huh, I'm interested in getting mentorship. Click error 404. And I just think we can do better than that. There was a report that the State Department sent to Capitol Hill that was asking about mentorship programs, among other diversity initiatives. And the State Department reported that we have 90% match rate. What does that mean? Some people, you sent an email, right? You matched people. You said, hey, you, Vic, you're matched with Dan. And so 90% of people in the organization were matched. That's not good enough. You've got to get in there, track this thing over time, make a tweak, measure the result. Make another tweak, measure the result. And I think Congress can help by mandating the department do this. It's one of those things that helps everyone and yields meritorious, diverse outcomes for your organization. This 90% match rate speaks to one of the vital aspects of social science that I think some folks are skeptical of, that, that yeah, you can lie with statistics. That's what I hear a lot of time when I'm talking about evidence in foreign policy. It's, it's just so easy to lie with statistics. Yeah, of course it is. It's easy to lie. But the power also is it's easy to tell the truth, too. And right. when things are transparent and you can look at the data 
and you have uh, a range of folks who can take a look at the work that you've done. It allows us another opportunity, in addition to storytelling and qualitative evidence and, and people's lived experience, all that is vital evidence, of course. But statistics help us as well to be able to say, wait a second, maybe that's not the right statistic. There should be a different one we're looking at. And if you're hiding the ball here, then that's not that's not right. That brings me to my, my next section here in this legislation I was reading through on leadership, engagement, and accountability. This recommendation suggests the secretary, well, in fact, it requires the secretary to implement performance and advancement requirements that reward and recognize senior management efforts to promote diversity and inclusion. On its face, it sounds like a good idea. How do you feel about that? This work is fits a certain logic. It's very popular, right? When people say the McDonald's, for example, did something similar, they started tying executive pay, some bonuses for your executive leaders to their efforts to promote diversity and inclusion. And I retweeted the tweet of our president of the Academy of Management, right? So the top researcher on all management issues. And she expressed some reservations. She said, this usually leads to more of a juking the numbers effect rather than genuine organizational change that lets people of all races and all genders thrive. So what this is in the research biz, we would call this a diversity evaluation, right? You want a promotion? You want to get that next pay grade? You got to submit to us a write-up of what you did for diversity. Now, there's one problem, and it's the problem of incentives. This kind of approach will yield lots of creative writing. You're going to get a boom in narrative precision about these things. One of my first lessons that I learned at the Department of State was from a wise office management support officer, and she showed me the... EER, the employee evaluation report that she was helping to type up for her boss. And her first lesson to me was some people lie on these things. There was a section that mentioned how this boss held jam sessions at their house on the weekends with all the entry-level officers and the interns to really mentor the next generation. These jam sessions included music with career advice. The person was such a great writer. This was a political chief, so they were their, their prose was just beautiful. I, I found myself transported into a jam session <laughs> that I had never attended because these things never happened. And so... I know there are a lot of people who are using the logic of their experience. They'll say, hey, Vic, I've sat on a promotion board. What we do is we take the precepts and we look at their experience and you only get promoted. I've heard it. I've heard it. Lots of senior officials have said, hey, trust me, I've been in a promotion board. We need these diversity evaluations in there for our senior management. I'm telling you that the kind of accountability for this that actually works is the accountability of knowing that you're going to have to explain your diversity results to the chief diversity officer. That's the accountability pathway that works. Accountability by writing, sometimes creatively, about your efforts to improve diversity for a promotion board to evaluate is exactly the wrong thing to do. If I keep hiring mics in this department... Will I pass muster with the chief diversity officer or will I get a lot of uncomfortable questions, a lot of uncomfortable requests for justifications from that chief diversity officer? I don't know if you noticed, but what I just mentioned doesn't take a whole lot of money. So rather than signing all these checks 
for folks to do mandatory classes. So you've got folks feeling shackled there, feeling all kinds of bad things, maybe feeling bad things about Black people because someone forced them to go into a diversity event. We in the scholarly community are saying that those bad feelings have consequences. Someone gets up and they bar the door for promotions of minorities after you force them to go to these things. So we've got to think strategically and really invest our time in those thumbs up things, those targeting the bosses for training, voluntarily letting them build a positive identity by themselves. Hey, I'm the type of guy who shows up at the voluntary bias intervention training. That's the way to build this stuff. That's the way to get results. And we've got to leave aside those thumbs down programs or else we're, what signal are we sending? Saying, hey, we got the evidence. We just don't care. It'll be useful to do a quick lightning round. Tell me thumbs up or thumbs down on the recommendations from this congressional report. Let's start from the top. 15% training float. Thumbs up, strong. Instead of up to 15%, make it at least 15%. And Congress can help with the appropriations. Publishing diversity data. Strong thumbs up. Transparency is a very strong predictor of future diversity. When people know they have to write it down and that it'll be seen by the world, they start to try to act right. Exit interviews for employees who have departed. Strong thumbs up. I would add in addition to the one-on-one or focus group, whatever approach of exit interviews, that actually unobtrusively tracing the future promotions people have with a LinkedIn API or something like that will help us understand if we're retaining the right folks or the wrong folks. How about mandatory diversity training for managers? Two thumbs down. And Dan, if you'll lend me yours, we'll make it four. Instead of mandatory diversity training, what should we replace it with? Voluntary, boss-only bystander intervention training. There are many figures out there, the genuine bystander intervention training. You want someone who's been trained over by Sharon Potter at the University of New Hampshire. And last but not least, required performance reviews of management efforts to promote diversity and inclusion. Thumbs down. The unfortunate news for this kind of diversity evaluation is that you'll probably suppress on average about 8.3% fewer uh, Black men rising through the ranks than otherwise. One last question. Is there anything else in this report that they missed that should be in here related to improving the diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Department of State? You know what? I am just really impressed with the the transparency piece of this. I think that Congress and the executive are aligned at the same moment on the issue of transparency. They trust that the GAO did a good job in reporting. They know that we have lost diversity from 2002 to present day. And frankly, the folks on Twitter who like to say that diversity doesn't matter as much as merit are missing the main idea. But Congress gets it and the president gets it, right? That this is about achieving merit. That if you've got an organization full of mics, you've missed something in the labor market that's a little suspicious. And so transparency on this, tracking our diversity performance over time is very important. I'm glad Congress got it. I honestly am am so pleased with this. I think the one thing I would add in there is to take, if Congress would help the department build those thumbs up systems with some real staffing, some real appropriations for the diversity office. You got to retool this mentorship stuff over time. You got to answer people's feedback and improve it over the years. And so you're going to need someone who's not going to zip in and zip out 
on rotational assignments to do this work. Someone's got to be an expert and track it over time to make improvements and to retool it. I think that this legislation could use a little more help to the department on recruitment efforts. The State Department is very volunteer driven on this. The idea is people haven't met diplomats, so we're going to meet all the people. Like all the diplomats will have to go meet all the humans in America, and then they will learn about diplomacy. So rather than having brand new volunteer initiatives, one piece that's missing is is for Congress to authorize a real surge in the recruitment effort to help us identify merit wherever it is across our, our country. That's all we thought you might want to hear this week. If it wasn't, you can file a complaint at podcast at fp21.org. Encouraging comments and ideas for future episodes are, of course, welcome, too. The podcast is brought to you by FP21, a nonprofit dedicated to the promotion of evidence and integrity in American foreign policy. You can find out more about the organization, how to get involved, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website at fp21.org. We tweet at fp21.org. Special thanks to our intern, Michelle Wright, and to Ronan McDermott for composing our theme music. Thank you.